Father God, we thank you indeed for the glorious news of this day. Death is dead. Christ is risen. We pray, Father, as we look in on that first Easter morning and we see the scene and we see the evidence through the eyewitnesses that you would help us to see what they saw and in seeing, believe. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Well, Easter, I I reckon, is a a pretty strange holiday, don't you think? It's uh, good to get four days off if we can get it, and perhaps if you can sneak a few days in between, you could even uh, have a whole run of days off in this little period we're in now, but it's all a bit low-key. I mean, in comparison to Christmas, it just doesn't seem as appealing, does it? Compared to Christmas, uh, Easter, for starters, is a marketing nightmare for the shops. Have you noticed that? They try all sorts of things, but it just doesn't seem to stick like Christmas does. Christmas has it all, the the lovable baby, the carols by candlelight, the endless presents, Father Christmas, you name it, Christmas has it. But marketing Easter is a harder sell. The best we can come up with is a chocolate egg laying bunny rabbit. (laughs) And uh, the phrase, uh, only 40 shopping days till Easter, hasn't really caught on yet, has it? I put it to you that this struggle we have uh, with Easter and the low-key approach we have to it is because of the subject matter at the heart of Easter. Easter at its core is all about a death. It is about a cruel death, the crucifixion of an innocent man. And so given the sombre subject matter that is at the heart of Easter, it's not surprising that we would want to keep things low-key and invent a chocolate-laying bunny instead. A death or chocolate, it seems an obvious choice, doesn't it? But I suspect for many of us, myself included, once uh, we've woken this afternoon from a chocolate-induced slumber to a chocolate-induced headache instead, uh, we realise that even beyond uh, the foil wrapping and the hot cross buns and the public holiday, death is still there. And try as we might, we know that death still stalks this earth and sometimes it gets far too close, doesn't it, as we have heard this morning in our own church family. And yes, we're right to expect it, but it doesn't make it okay, does it? Death is for us the end of relationship. That's what makes it so hard, doesn't it? The end of of another's presence that we weren't ready to let go of. And no wonder we would not want to dwell on it on a weekend like this. But this morning, if you are in the habit of leaving Easter at the level of eggs and holidays, because death is not a very nice holiday topic, then just for a few moments, let me ask you to look again at Easter. For at Easter, God gives us his answer to death. Life. And life to the full. That's what we're going to see this morning. God's answer to death. Life. And we're going to do that by following the account of that first Easter morning through the three eyewitnesses that are given to us here in John chapter 20. And as we look at this uh, simple account together, I want you to have one question in your mind as we see the eyewitnesses. It's a question that was actually asked of one of them. What are you looking for? And what led you here this morning? Uh, Who or what were you looking for? Whatever it was, come and look again. Don't stand at a distance from this scene. See what they saw and ask, what am I looking for here? And so John chapter 20, verse 1, the eyewitness account begins, we're told it's early on the Sunday morning, the the day that changed our world forever. 
the day that saw those who witnessed the events of that first Easter morning give their lives to defend the truth of what they saw that day. Mary's our first eyewitness. As she's gone to the tomb to mourn, as was the custom, and she's treading the path that she probably trod the previous morning as well, walking through the garden, up the path to the tomb where Jesus had been laid on that Good Friday. But this time it's different. The tomb uh, that she would have been used to seeing, tombs like this, I imagine there would have been many loved ones she had lost along the way in her life, but this time she turns the corner and the tomb that was secured by the Roman centurions was now open and empty. Can you imagine the shock? And she does uh, what seems reasonable. She runs in panic back to Peter and John with the logical conclusion to this scene. His body must have been stolen. Remember our question? What are you looking for? And Mary's answer is obvious. She was looking for a body. That's what you find in a tomb. That's what happens. A man dies and that's it. And as we look on at Mary here, we need to realise something about her and that is that her response here is rational, isn't it? One of the myths surrounding the early disciples is that they were dull simpletons without the sort of sophisticated thinking that we have developed, as if thinking is a new discovery. Well, Mary here is the consummate rationalist. She sees the evidence and she makes the rational conclusion based on experience, based on the laws she knows of how nature works. He's been taken. What else could it be? Isn't this how we think? A man dies and stays dead. Experience says that. Our fixed natural laws that that make our world understandable to us and manageable to us, they, they say that and they won't allow the truth claim that someone has risen from the dead to live forever. An empty tomb equals body stolen. Couldn't be anything else. Or could it? Well, to answer that question, we need the help of the other two eyewitnesses, John and Peter, as Mary runs and tells them of this scene. They too want to see it for themselves, see the evidence. And so they start running to the tomb and John uh, tells us uh, that he got there first. He's fitter and younger than Peter. I love it here as he's describing the, the most crucial event in all of history and giving us all the evidence. He takes the time to just let us know, by the way, I won the race. <laughs> and so they arrive and here the personalities come to the fore. John might have been a faster runner but he is hesitant. He sneaks a bit of a peek inside, he sees the clothes but he won't go in. And so if we want more evidence, Peter is our man for now because he arrives and charges straight in. And I suspect one of the reasons he does this is just two chapters earlier in John's Gospel we read the account of the last thing Peter did when he saw Jesus alive. Three times in quick succession he said of Jesus, I've never met him. Huge regret. I imagine for Peter, if he thought there was any chance that Jesus was alive again, he would be desperate to see him, to take back what he'd said. And so he goes in and he looks around and he sees nothing. The body is gone. Perhaps Mary was right. Perhaps someone stole it. But then there's this. The strips of linen, we're told, are are lying there and this doesn't add up for Peter. I mean, if someone was to steal the body, they would have just taken it, linen and all. 
because by now the linen was not some sort of neatly ironed starch, perfectly white cloth. That's, that's I guess, how we imagine it and how Hollywood depicts it. But here is linen that was wrapped in a body that had been tortured and crucified. And yet we're told in verse 7 the clothes are still lying in place as if the body was still in them. They're lying there like some sort of cocoon that the body has come out of. New life has come out of. But again, in Peter, we have an ally of the rational mind. We're told in one of the other accounts of this scene in Luke 24 that he walked away wondering what had happened. This doesn't add up. And so weighing the evidence through the lens of rational presuppositions that he has, he gets nowhere, scratching his head. And so our third eyewitness comes into play. John finally digs up the courage to go in and he does something very simple. He is timid, yes, he took a while to go in, but I wonder if we'd have the courage to do what he does here. He weighs the scene, not on his experience, but on the evidence. What are the facts, he says, in front of me? What do I see? What does this say to me? He sees and he believes. It's not blind faith, is it? His eyes are wide open to the evidence. Belief is for him no mere daydream to chase away the grief of this scene. What use is that in the face of death? Now he believes based on the facts. It's an experience of confident acceptance because of what he sees and so he believes. Now I imagine him standing there in the empty tomb and a smile creeping over his face as he realises he has done it just like he said he would crucified, buried and now risen from the dead. And so the two of them leave, John believing and Peter wondering. Well, let me ask you at this point in the scene, where are you at? Are you with Peter? Questions? Wondering how this adds up or are you with John? Where does the evidence point? We'll allow the first witness, Mary, to uh, help some more. She comes back into the scene at verse 11. Having got back to the tomb, the others have gone and at this point the scene gets very personal as it always does in a scene like this. Here she is beside the tomb of the man she shared friendship with, the man Jesus of Nazareth. And she, like Peter and John, loved this man and losing him matters to her. And so she is bent over in grief. And this loss of uh, the body for her, it's the final indignity. She's seen him arrested and tried and tortured and pierced on the cross and seen him breathe his last and die. And now this. She too finally looks into the tomb and sees an extraordinary sight. Two angels where the body would have been. Angels, we're told, in brilliant white. It's the colour that God uses all the way through the scriptures to announce a victory. It's the colour of heaven. Here are the angels dressed in the battle colours of heaven, the home shirt, if you will, announcing that in this tomb, on this day, God wins, not death. But remember, Mary's a rationalist and so the tears for her continue to flow because in her world, death always wins. Isn't that your experience too? But the angels, seeing Mary, ask the most remarkable question. You see it there in verse 13? Why are you crying? I mean, could you imagine a more inappropriate question to ask at a gravesite of someone who has lost a loved one? Why are you crying? 
And I suspect there is something in that question that we understand in the way we handle death, that we get so used to it, uh, we almost become immune to it after a while. We come to see it as a natural part of life's cycle, denying the evil and the power of it. One of the leading exponents of this denial was a a Swiss-born psychiatrist, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote a definitive book on death called On Death and Dying. This is what she said. The moment of death is neither frightening nor powerful. It's merely the peaceful cessation. It's like a raindrop returning to the ocean. Beautiful quote, isn't it? But she's got to be kidding. I'm sure you know that's rubbish. And I know from the experience of sitting in many lounge rooms, even last night, late last night, as family and friends come to terms with death, that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is talking out of her hat. It's not merely peaceful cessation. There's nothing peaceful about it. And yet, the angels looking upon Mary weeping, an appropriate response to what is happening, dare to ask why. And not because they've read Kubler-Ross's book and bought that lie, no, because they are dressed in the colours of heaven's victory and they ask, knowing that the evidence in this scene demands another response altogether. No tears here because he is not here, he has risen. But Mary, ever the rationalist, her mind can't take this in and she continues to weep. And then it happens. The reason we're here this morning Mary, we're told, becomes aware of movement behind her and she turns and there is Jesus, just standing there. Wow. But here you see the bankruptcy of rationalism. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, an empty tomb, the clothes as if the body has just come out of it, the angels declaring this victory, what more could you ask for? Well, how about this? The risen Jesus standing in front of you behold the blindness of the light of our age, rationalism, even in the face of the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, it must be the gardener, she thinks. But it's not. You see, Christian faith is not blind, is it? It stands on concrete historical evidence of something we've never experienced before, but it happened. It really happened. He really rose from the dead. And in the days that followed, he would stand before many others and they too would testify to the clear fact that Jesus of Nazareth was alive again. And not in some sort of metaphorical, alive-in-our-hearts type rubbish, he was alive. They spoke with him, they touched him, they hugged him, they ate with him. He was there, alive with them. Only rationalism that measures things by what they've experienced would close its eyes to the clear evidence of the resurrection. We'll go back to our scene with a struggling Mary talking to who she assumes is the gardener and he asks again why cry and then follows it up with our question. Who are you looking for? As you look in on the evidence this morning, as you came here today, what, what were you looking for? Looking to see Jesus and find perhaps a man who, like us, knows the pain of death? Or a wise man, a, a moral man, an inspiring man? Were you looking for a man who actually is everything he promised he would be? Were you prepared to come and hear and find the one who said, I will lay down my life for you and then I will take it up again? And he did. He really did. He was arrested. 
tortured, although innocent. He walked up that hill carrying his cross and was crucified and died as he promised for our sins to forgive them. He really did. He did it because he loved this world so much he would perish instead of us. He really did. He was buried and in the tomb placed on sunset Friday and he was there till sunset Saturday and then sometime before Mary arrived at the tomb on early on Sunday morning, God raised his son to life again. And he walked out and right now, not the gardener, but Jesus of Nazareth was standing before Mary. And he asked her, who are you looking for this morning? Were you daring enough to look for the God who does everything he promised he would, even this? Well, at last for Mary, the penny drops. As the final piece of evidence comes to her, not to her eyes this time, but to her ears in verse 16, one word, Mary, he says. And she looks up and hears the voice she's heard many times before calling her name as he always did, her teacher, Jesus. But he's so much more than her teacher now. In John's Gospel in chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the Good Shepherd and he says, I will call my sheep by name and they will hear my voice and they will follow me because they know my voice. And he makes this promise, I will lay down my life for my sheep. He says it because he's got the power to do that and the power to take it back up again. And so having done just that, he calls on one of his sheep here, Mary. Before her stands the risen Lord who is everything he promised he'd be. He, she sees and believes. And you see here she does the only rational thing you can do before him, bows the knee, he's king, even over death, and she clings, she grabs hold of him because here is her hope. Now as we come uh, towards a close, let me ask you, as you looked in on this scene again this morning, do you believe this? The evidence? Do you believe Mary's claim in verse 18, I have seen the Lord? Well, perhaps have you heard the testimony again this morning of these three and failed to be convinced? One, perhaps because you're not a sinner and therefore he need not die for you. And two, because, well, he certainly didn't beat death. No one does. Well, if so, let me speak candidly. Enjoy Easter. And may it be filled with chocolate and buns because that's as high an ambition as you have for this weekend. For you are convinced in our world death still reigns. Or are you with Peter? You've seen the evidence but still questioning, still trying to work out how this all adds up. Now, if so, keep looking. Now let me encourage you to be bold in your investigation. Jesus promises here life where death reigns. Test it out. I'm going to be standing on the door after the service with a little booklet designed to help you to think through those very questions. I'd love to give you one if that's where you're at. Wherever you are this Easter, let me ask you as we finish that, to not do something. Uh, Don't do what Peter and John do in verse 10. Did you see it there as it was read out to us? Seeing all they saw in the tomb, seeing all the evidence, what do they do? Well, they go back home. Now, there are many things I reckon that could seem hard to believe in this account, but this for me takes the prize. See the evidence, believe it is true, or at least for Peter, worth continuing to think about, and then, well, just go home. Nothing's changed. 
Jesus rose, what's for lunch? Well, beyond the rational mindset, you see another mindset here on display, the one that rules in our culture, the so what mindset. Resurrection, true, but so what? Well, here's my challenge. Ask yourself this. Why do you think he did it? Why do you think God raised his son from death? Simple. He hates death. Why do you hate death? Well, I hate it because it's the end of life and life is good, very good. So I hate it. And I hate it because it's the end of relationship and relationships are good, very good. How good is it to be known and know another person, to be totally at home with someone? I hate that death can steal that. Don't you? Well, here's the thing about Easter. Our God hates that too. But unlike us, he has the power to do something about it. Jesus rose from the dead because God loves life. Because he wins, not death. So the resurrection matters because God does as he has promised and here's his promise to those who would believe this evidence. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Do you believe this, he says? That matters, doesn't it? Here is hope, our only hope. 2,000 years ago, our hope was born the day he rose from the grave. Real and lasting hope. Don't go home without that hope. Jesus rose from the dead because he loves relationship. In the end, that's what the open tomb means for us. It is an open door back to our God, back to the most important relationship you will ever have with the one who made you and who died for you and can offer you eternal life with him. And don't go home without that relationship. Jesus, the good shepherd, laid down his life only to take it back up again. He calls his sheep by name to share in his victory. He called Mary and Peter and John and he calls you if you would listen. Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious news of that Easter day. He is risen. And we thank you, Father, that you have won over death and you have won the way back to relationship with you. I pray, Father, that we would be those who see this evidence and in seeing would believe. Amen.